Hello, and welcome again to another episode of Five Plain Questions, a podcast that proposes five questions to indigenous artists, creators, musicians, writers, movers and shakers, and culture bears, people in the community that are doing great things for their communities. I'm Joe Williams, your host for this conversation. I'm director of CANA, the Native American programs at the Plains Art Museum. My goal is to showcase these amazing people in our indigenous communities from around the region and country. I want to introduce you to Prairie Rose Seminole, a citizen of the three affiliate tribes of North Dakota, descendant of the Sanish, Arikara, Northern Cheyenne, and Lakota nations. Prairie Rose fits into the category of mover and shaker. Even before she was an adult, she's been serving as a political consultant, a coach, an advisor, and speaker. She's had a seat at the table from across the spectrum, from the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, serving as the American Indian Alaskan Native Program Director for that organization, as well as the Fargo Human Rights Commission in Fargo, North Dakota, the Midwest Advisory Council to the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis, and currently sits on the Olamina Fund and Boards for the Humanities of North Dakota the Midwest Advisory Council for the Innocence Project, along with countless other boards and committees. All that being said, I, I think what makes Prairie Rose so interesting is her love and care for 10 horses and seven country dogs with her partner. It's, it's really quite a story to listen to. And yeah, so, you know, let's just jump into this interview with Prairie Rose. Prairie Rose Seminole, thank you so much for joining us at Five Plain Questions. It's, it's an honor to have you with us. I'm glad to be here, Joe. Thanks for thanks thanks for the invitation. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Um, so yeah, let's just jump into it. Um, can you introduce yourself? Um, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and where you're from. Nawa, uh, everyone. Uh, hello. My name is Prairie Rose Seminole. I'm from the three affiliated tribes here in Western North Dakota. I grew up in Fargo, North Dakota. Uh, I have uh, since been mostly a resident across the state of North Dakota, currently living uh, and working in Western North Dakota and, and Western South Dakota. But my background, it varies. I've been involved with the political landscape in North Dakota since the early 2000s. I was in appointed leadership in governance structures in the city of Fargo uh, since the mid 19. 90s. Uh, I feel I feel old, but I was a teenager when when I stepped into a lot of these offices. Uh, but I also have a background in community organizing and faith, living your faith in action. And so I've been working in and out of faith-based uh, uh, organizations, and I've been working in and out of uh, po political organizations, off often as a policy analyst, often as a trainer to uh, to recruit and train Native leaders. Well actually many people, specifically women across the country to run for office and stepping into their power. I got involved in a lot of that work uh, very early on in my, my early 20s. Um, sitting in a point of office, I, I didn't really know what that meant as a young person. So I'm, here I'm a teenager having the ear of, you know, mayors and city council members and law enforcement and I was clearly the one at the table who was unlike everybody else because I was the token, right? I was the native kid at the table. I was the poor kid at the table. And I didn't understand that power and that uh, circle of privilege that I was in until, I mean, it wasn't late, but it was in, in my early twenties. And I, when I realized, wow, I actually have a voice, I can have an impact here. And 
being recognized as a leader in the community. And so when there are issues that would pop up, the media would call you, or uh, uh, if, if there was a perspective needed uh, for, for native people, uh, folks would call you, right? Or if you're at a gathering, um, the natives in the, in the room would be like, talk to Prairie Row, she's the leader, or, you know, just put me out front and center. So um, it, it really shaped my uh, life, understanding that our, our lives are interrelated with one another. There's uh, uh, a responsibility that we have to our community and our family. And I, I've always carried that with with pride, but also knowing that I'm not alone. Like I'm, I'm not out here doing the work that I do uh, solo. It sometimes feels that way, but to know that my relatives are watching, that my family's watching, that the community's watching means the world to me because together we can really like move some mountains. You know, that's, um, I think that work is how we originally crossed paths um, early, or for me early on. Um, you were uh, in Fargo, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, it was a Native American center uh, right off Main Street there, I believe. And I was looking for, um, uh, if anything, just uh, support uh, guidance um, on this uh, gallery that I was trying to open at the time. Um, and yeah, that's where we sat down. It was great to be able to chat with you and to have someone listen to to what I was trying to do. Yeah, I think the the the, the value in having a place for natives to go, kind of our like one stop shop, is what we always strive for. Because mm-hmm. um, when I was growing up, my parents were a part of a group that allowed for I, I shouldn't say allowed they they worked to establish a, a house for. Um, education, for faith, for community, for um, women's groups, men's groups, uh, recovery groups, uh, those transitioning back into the community from, you know, being formerly incarcerated, uh, struggling with addiction and needing a place to, to, to get a cup of coffee and just to talk with somebody. That's, that's how I was raised, you know, just being mindful that um, we're one, one system around us isn't standalone all these systems around us are are connected and so uh, i grew up in a a day when indian education and uh, ministries and indian advocacy um, uh, the red road recovery group daughters of the earth uh, i can think of a few others that were all under the same roof you know contributing to this community place and uh, we we received funding from all kinds of agencies and my my mom was funded through the lutheran church um and so that that kind of really unfolded in in front of me is like where where do we go how do we have these conversations and you know how do we how do we lift each other up um i I like to see that uh, happen because that's what allowed me to do the work that i do you know you you think of your heroes and you think of um the, the people who leave an impact. And for me, it was sitting underneath that table. Um, before we were on that, the, the, the house you're talking about, I think was on 9th Street called the Wesley Center. But we used to actually be on Main Street, right across the street from McDonald's. And so that's where community really flourished. And I'm, I remember being able to cross Main safely. You can't really do that anymore. But safely as a kid, go across the street, get my McDonald's Happy Meal because somebody gave me a couple bucks, <laughs> come back, <laughs> sit at the table because I was, I was small then. 
<laughs> not so small anymore, but small then and listening to community leaders talk about the issues that are affecting our lives and then what we can do about it, you know? So I was surrounded by these doers who knew that they were, you know, challenging the systems around us and maybe challenging leadership and power. And I couldn't name it at that time, you know, as a little kid sitting under the table, eating my chicken nuggets with some honey, but, uh, or my cheeseburgers. I, I like those cheeseburgers too. I was like, no, I haven't had bottles in years, <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's nostalgic to, to think about, seeing uh pathways unfold um and the leaders you know that are in my family or just in the community and many not with us anymore today you know we quickly became the the elders in training mm. well let's let's um, touch on that a little bit here uh can you talk about who your biggest influences are uh, were and uh, yeah i really appreciated uh you know i'm, I'm as a young 20 something, I'm sitting in, you know, public office, appointed office with the Human Relations Commission. I was with the state um, Indian Affairs table as well. Um, and I, like I said I, before, I didn't really understand like the the voice I had at those levels. And so I really appreciated running into, um, you know, Winona LaDuc. She was running for vice president at the time. And this was, again, was my early 20s. And uh, she was so accessible, you know, she was a very accessible person. And that was surreal to me, thinking back on how accessible a vice presidential candidate was to Indian country and here just being a couple hours away from Fargo. Um, but I but I set a relationship with her to really understand uh, our economy, our systems around us, that systems awareness, I think, is so fundamental to understanding our uh our citizenship, I mean, just to call it something that's not so much that we're citizens of this country or citizens of a tribal nation or citizens of the state or wherever, but this, this agreement that we have on the lands that we live on and the value of those lands that we live on. And so Winona, her early interaction with me really instilled this value of understand what you're fighting for right? Understand that your voice does represent something. And where does that come from? Where are you rooted, right? Where are you grounded? And, and what are you willing to, to protect, right? My parents were really strong advocates, and I would consider them having a huge impact in my life. And, you know, we weren't uh, um, always a happy family. You know, my dad struggled with addiction. My, my mother struggled with codependency. And uh, when you raise children in, in a public light as they did, um, oops, sorry, it's windy over here. <laughs> the, the reality is um, we pick up on some of those traits too. Uh, I chose to live like a completely sober life, but um, they, they instilled in me, we're advocates, we're community builders. By nature, our, our kind of our, our indigeneity brings us closer together in community um, because our lives are so interrelated. So they had a huge impact on, on how I work today, um, how I live. Um, Winona really allowed for me to connect to what was seeming political, right? And it, it, many of these issues aren't political for us, they're personal. Um, I ran into uh, the late Carrie Dan, uh, she's Shoshone, Western Shoshone, early on too in my early 20s. And this, this idea of justice 
um, that lens changed for me because who defines justice when our lands are taken away, um, when our people are being killed, when our children are being taken away, right? This dominant culture had a lens of justice that, that affects our lives as well. But for the first time meeting Carrie Dan too, talking about the gradual encroachment of the US government taking their, their family lands and, and using it, exploiting it really, um, just to, again, really early on set up this, this value of what are, what are we protecting? What systems are we protecting? How has those systems caused us harm? And what are we doing now to, to heal, uh, you know, to fix those systems, right? I think that's why I got involved in training so many people to run for office because I'm like, you run for office. Like you're fighting the system and your lived experience is what we need that, that to change within the system. So run for office. Well, I'm not qualified. I'm not this or that, or I've got all these skeletons in the closet. I was like, get over yourself. <laughs> I don't say it that way. I should say it that <laughs> way, but it's more of a, where can we get you to, to run for office? And one other person too, I'll mention, and I feel like this is, uh, you know, just turning into the matriarchal section, but Gladys Ray, um, you know, was a, was a neighbor of mine. And I didn't really get to know her till I was an adult. I was a young adult and um, sitting in a pointed office and she was so proud of me. Um, <laughs> I, her twin uh, granddaughters, April and Amber, who are very active in the Fargo-Moorhead community in India education, uh, were, were friends growing up, but we, then we worked together as adults. But uh, it, was, it was Gladys who really kept bringing me back. Um, my early 20s were rife with uh, violence and addiction in the family and dealing with crises. And I'm still sitting in political, you know, appointed office. And she, she gave me that balance um, that I needed and a mentor. I really needed a mentor at that time um, just to help navigate things. And she was such a grandma. Like I remember I got invited to go to Kentucky and um, I was in college and, you know, dirt poor. And she, she invited me in for dinner and we had um, some meals and uh, then she pulls out like a hundred dollar bill, and you know, have fun, have fun in Kentucky, you know? Um, you know, she did things a lot like that. She, she told me once, because uh, we were working on housing, we had such a, a housing shortage for for Native people in the Fargo-Moorhead area, but we also had um, a huge uh, issue with, with those who were unhoused. Um, I was working at the center at the time and uh, we, we, would, we were just losing so many people. I remember one, one winter we lost, gosh, I think seven people, seven, eight people. One, um, you know, we lost them very publicly uh, on, you know, because of the weather um, and, and several others we lost uh, in, in incarceration, right? In detox for the night in a jail cell because we didn't have a detox. Um, uh, we, we didn't have a shelter that allowed people to, to come in under the influence. And so we just, we fought for years to get uh, a shelter that would take people who were under the influence um, that had a detox connected to it, right? Um, and that, that place today still stands and it's named after Gladys Ray. She always said, cause we're very faithful people. She says, you know, we believe Jesus Christ is gonna come back. Jesus is, Jesus is here, Jesus has been here. 
Jesus has come back as a homeless native man. <laughs> so um, how are we taking care of those that, that need to be taken care of? Wow, so those thanks. are a few of my hands. <laughs> <laughs> so how has, has uh, this career of yours developed over time? Luck. Just kidding. <laughs> uh, hard work, honestly. Um, when you when you start to fight on an issue, um, whether it's healthcare, environmental justice, marriage, right, marriage equality, um, uh, the needs for our people, abolition, getting you know, uh, getting funding into programs that actually, you know, mitigate risk in our communities for violence. You know, creating safe communities. Uh, you have to do a lot of research. You need to read a lot. You need to talk to a lot of people. You have to dive into uh, the research and um, uh, take that time to, to be knowledgeable. And so that preparation really brings you up to, to when you're posed with a situation, whether you're speaking or testifying um, at, at state levels or federal levels, because I've been in those arenas, or even just informing and educating people on why we are in the certain situations that we are, whether that's politically or economically or culturally even. Um, I, lot of, I do a lot of Indian 101 with non-natives, but also with native people. Um, how, how have we gotten to where we are now, right? What is the value of a treaty? Um, and through that work, you, you, you're not alone. You start building uh, relationships and, and trust with with those who are also doing the work on the front lines, and the work shifts every now and then, right? Like you're you can be working for um, uh, uh, you know environmental justice one day, and then voting rights the next because of the nature of our political moments, um, and then uh, uh, something happens that that calls us all into this new justice moment that informs our work. And, and we have to, uh, you know, formulate how do we respond as a community that way. And sometimes that's a national collective, right? So I sit at these tables that intersect on a local level, on a national level, sometimes on an international level, depending on the different issues that I work with. And sometimes I just want to work at the community level, sometimes easier then. <laughs> but the systems around us do affect um, uh, that particular work too. Like right now, I'm doing some some contract work with a very rural community in Western North Dakota, or excuse me, South Dakota, close to the North Dakota border, um, that ha has an opportunity for an infusion of, of, of funds and resources through a grant. And they want a long-term infrastructure. Uh, they want to do economic development. They want to do um, you know, youth programming because, and, and they want to have a treatment center, right? Like, so there's all these issues that they want to focus on, uh, but the, the cash that they have won't last that long, right? It's, it's, it's the reality that, that we've got this infusion of cash, but how do we make it last? Well, that's through partnerships. That's through building relationships. That's getting data, right? Let's see where the census data is, um, is that with, with counting our communities, uh, but maybe let's do our own data. How do we do that? How do we fund that? Um, my, I'm, I'm really fortunate, I know I'm babbling on here, but I'm really fortunate that uh, my career has taken turns, but it's it seems to have always aligned where my passion, um, you know, 
are with with that particular work one door closes and there seems to be just a few more open right around the corner and i've been very fortunate that in my career trajectory that if i found myself in a toxic work environment i could leave that toxic work environment and go somewhere else if i found myself burnt out I could leave that burnout situation and go somewhere else. Um, you know, contracting work uh, isn't always easy, but it, but you're able to say, I've got a house for this work. I'm able to find a home for this work. And sometimes that home moves in with a larger organization or institution for a while. And, you know, maybe I'm looking for a forever home in an institution, but it, the work is always going to be there. That's the nature of, of <laughs> getting involved with, with community and political and, and just change work in general. You know, critical race theory at play um, is definitely a foundation to uh, justice work and change work. And if I can have a conversation with a bunch of Native elders on how do we heal from the traumas or the pain these systems have caused us, that just allows me to feel better that the work is going somewhere. And it also allows me to, to, to feel that I'm a part of this intergenerational handoff of we're going to make this world a better place. And we're doing that because we've been able to have that conversation around healing or around justice or around what we need. And it, it's not so radical to think that a community knows what they need to, to thrive. It just, finding the channels to get there. I did kind of babble on there. I'm sorry, but. Oh, no, it's great. Relationship. Yeah. <laughs> <In> preparation. <laughs> <laughs> Three words. Yeah, no, no. Uh, it, it's great to, to voice those though. Uh, you know, for those who are listening, who are, who are behind you, who are, are trying to, I think, follow your lead in a sense, it, it's good for them to hear these details um, to be on the lookout. So, that, and I don't know if this question, how this, uh, I, I often ask um, the guests, uh, how do you seek opportunities? Um, and I, I get quite often the, the, the opportunities change as individuals move through, through their career. You know, as they're younger, they're seeking opportunities. And as they're older and become more accomplished, the opportunities start presenting themselves or people start to seek them out once they have um, a few projects behind them. And I, I was wondering if you could talk on that. It's, you know, sometimes you do have to seek opportunity though. I feel like uh, there was both opportunities presented and opportunities that I've had to go seek out. And the opportunities that were presented, I, I've learned, uh, because Native people, especially in dominant culture, are often uh, very novelty. Um, uh, we can learn from those environments and, and sometimes use those environments where we are novelty to, to educate and inform and uh, create allies and, and, and accomplices in the work that we do. Uh, but the opportunities that, that I've often sought out are are the ones that I've been able to grow more. Like I wanted to focus on my writing for a while. So I sought out, um, you know, opportunities where I could write more. Um, I wanted to hone in my organizational development skills, right? So 
uh, happened to <laughs> seek out some opportunities, but that actually led me into another opportunity that not only gave me that type of education, those skill sets, but opened the door to a, a bunch of other things. Because I, I was, for the first time in my, this was in my 30s, uh, critically thinking about why I thought the way that I did, right? Because we don't often take that dive into, well, why do you think that, right? What experience has led you to think about uh, a certain issue in the way that you do, right? And then my own lived experience, right? We, we've had some tragedy in, in my family and uh, some with um, a, a, a time needing to mourn uh, those tragedies and at the same time seeking out how do I channel my grief into something productive when I'm ready to do that? Um, for example, you know, my, my late brother was, was um, you know, killed in law enforcement custody and uh, we wrestled for a, a long time, still wrestling with it actually, the grief of it all. And at the same time, these national moments were happening where black men were being killed by law enforcement. And it, it hit home, those, 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 movements that were created black lives matter lifting up indigenous people also at the same time you know really allowed for me to to grieve and advocate more publicly and being connected to something um those types of opportunities you don't you don't seek those out you know you 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 know that our lived experience though as indigenous people uh, or you know our, our our brothers and sisters you know who are black and brown and how our lived experience still is, uh, uh, what's the word? It's a challenge <laughs> to the systems around us. Our, our existing is a challenge to the systems around us sometimes. And um, it, it has opened my eyes to how, how we further develop and, and mend amongst our peoples within the context of who we are in this country and dealing with the race matters, dealing with the economic matters, dealing with the understanding that there's a very intentional design to leave indigenous black and brown voices out of the systems around us. And so therefore we've carried over incredible disparity, um, incredible gaps in, in, in access to resources, wealth, um, and how do we change that, right? We have to tackle these uh, in, in conversation. And, and there's so much that I don't know, right? Um, I did not, there, I mean, when, when, I, when I got involved with, um, I'm on the board or advisory council for the Innocence Project here in North Dakota. And that's, um, you know, largely an organization that seeks to, to right the wrong of someone incarcerated wrongly, right? Um, they're innocent. And so how do we prove that? And they're all over the country. But that opportunity came because I was challenging law enforcement to be better. <laughs> be better. You know, after my brother was killed, uh, so many families across Indian country in North Dakota, I mean, across three different reservations, came forward and said, um, uh, thank you for writing your brother's story, how painful it was. Sorry. And and expressing how hard that was as a family to name 
you know, his ha- his past as being formerly incarcerated and to his life being, uh, you know, struggling with addiction. Um, and we knew he was becoming the man that he knew he could be. It, just that addiction, that monster just kept a hold of him. But so many families would come forward and saying, my brother, my uncle, my cousin, my nephew, my son were all killed in law enforcement custody. How can we change this? There's no responsibility to Native men losing their lives in North Dakota. And we started to have to ask those questions. We had to start collecting data. And and people who were advocates in that arena, you know, former um, state's attorney Tim Purden, uh, who was appointed in North Dakota under the Obama administration became a, an incredible ally, right? And how we can just see, start to seek justice somehow, um, defined by us, by those grieving families. Um, we're still in a very early, early stage of that piece, but those conversations led me to be involved with uh, the, the organization, uh, the Innocence Project, because I've had so many families incarcerated there's family members incarcerated and dealing with those systems. And uh, so many who make the laws around our, uh, our, our systems of, um, you know, punitive, our criminal justice systems, they don't have to deal with it. They don't have to deal with it. We just, they just know that they can impose um, the ideas of what's right and what's wrong. um, And, uh, who, who's innocent, who isn't, right? Like all of these pieces, there's there's learning and growing that we have to do as a community. And, you know, our lived experiences give us those opportunities sometimes, not in the nicest way um, or not in the ways that we, we sometimes think they'll come, but how do we get to a point of seeing movement in those? And some people never get there. I get that. Um, I'm somebody who who's just been raised to uh because of my mentors to say how do we channel this pain to somewhere that you can heal and for me healing meant speaking out it meant putting something down but advocating and becoming a voice uh first i i I want to um offer my condolences uh on your brother um our i think because of social media um i've followed you for a while now on twitter and i've sort of watched this come out in real time on Twitter. And so uh, my heart breaks for you and your family over, over that loss. Um, you know, we, we have similar situations uh, back home where I'm from Sisson and Wapton, Oyate. And, you know, it's, 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 it's beyond heartbreaking. Um, and because it's, it's been on social media, um, I, I, I bring this up and we can talk about this if you'd like. Uh, one Thing that's come out from this is you've you've taken on sort of um uh a, a caretaker role over uh some horses over this mm-hmm. and i was wondering if you could talk maybe a little bit about this because i think this is part of a healing process possibly yeah. as well and you it's know, absolutely fascinating watching this thank you. yeah the stars aligned for my brother to get these horses he's been wanting to be a horseman since you know that's his childhood dream you know you look at we found his old artwork and excuse me some of these pieces that um you know he wrote as a as a as a as a child and horses were always a part of like that's the life I want to live he wants to be a cowboy he wants to do all this thing and he moved out west took him over a year to 
uh, secure land for his home site uh, with, within the Fort Berthold Indian Reservation here on our homelands. And um, he was working to not only bring these horses out here, but to create a program for those struggling with addiction and those formerly incarcerated, because there's very few programs um, and housing that, that, that brings our people home in a safe way, in a, a way that they can learn more about who they are and root them to something that they value, like a relationship with a horse, like a relationship with, you know, this this community that accepts you for, for all of what you thought were flaws, right? Like those things that we shame ourselves with. And when my when my brother lost his life, he left behind these seven beautiful horses. Um, and like I said, the stars aligned for him to get those in the first place. He was working construction, saved up money, um, was in a relationship with a woman out in Montana who happened to. Uh, be a horse broker uh, who was aware of a surgeon in South Dakota who had to liquefy their asset because they were in a class action lawsuit. And so my brother at the time had enough funding. I think he got some funding from my older sister too, uh, um, who had gotten a settlement because <laughs> it's so crazy that I'm saying this out loud, but she got a settlement because she got, accidentally got shot um on a on an in an accident uh well she was at a party on a in a farm like and the owner of the farm like accidentally uh discharged a gun that shot her um and uh, shot her in the arm thankfully it shot her in the arm you know think it would be nice to not she'd not get shot right but uh, she got shot in the arm and if, if she was i think the doctor um or the investigator said if it was a quarter quarter of an inch um in another direction, it would have went through her lungs and heart. So she's she's grateful to be alive too. But she had gotten a settlement <laughs> from that case. So they were able to get uh, these horses from the surgeon who <laughs> was getting sued. Um, and he moved them to Montana to, to be on the land of his, his uh, girlfriend at the time. Um, they were there for a short while. And then he moved them to North Dakota when he got land secured. And there's actually quite a few people involved in that whole transition um i didn't know nothing about horses joe like i, I knew they're pretty i rode them at, at pony land you know those well-trained quarter horses that could you know walk a path in their sleep um super gentle my my uncle had put me on a horse when i was i want to say 13 12 13 years old that was just a total green horse that bucked me off within like a quarter of a mile but, i mean i didn't know I don't know much about horses. So I got these horses and yeah, on the reservation, if you're a tribal member um, and maybe this is true for non-tribal members, I don't know, <laughs> but uh, when you die and you don't have a will, uh, there's a process that moves forward, the probate process, and that moves forward with, with and without a will. Um, uh, and about a year after my brother was killed, um, the probate process wasn't done quite yet. So it was still, uh, uh, pending on what was going to happen. We had taken care of his estate. I'm still taking care of these horses, which, you know, he, he was killed in December. And so we walking into winter in an area that he had just moved to, he was building a tiny house. He had fenced off a tiny little parcel of land with electric wire, but he'd never been out on that country with in a winter. <laughs> that first winter was brutal. Um, you know, there were days where I had to pack a sled with some square hay bales on it and actually walk about two miles to find the horses and make sure that there was hay down there. Um, 
I was just trying to keep them alive, just trying to keep them alive. And um, it was, <laughs> and there were days where I would just cry out there because <laughs> it was so hard taking care of them. But we, there was nothing I could do. I'm the executor of the estate, so I had to take care of the horses. I didn't know if we were going to keep them as a family. I didn't know if they would go um, to the estate. Like, I just, we just didn't know. Um, so I was like, there's, I was cursing my brother in death <laughs> to be like, why did you have to be so far away from like civilization? <laughs> I mean, it's three miles, <laughs> but still, when you have to walk that snow um, with, you know, a sled carrying hay, it was, it was tough um, getting stuck out there in the trucks, but they, they were absolutely a part of my healing process. It became this beautiful journey to go out, be with the land, be with the horses. They have a smell to them. Like when you're close and you just, and they're so warm, like in the winter time when my hands were freezing and there was a couple of nice ones <laughs> that would let me get close and just warm up. Um, and now they're, they're beautiful. We're, we're trying to get them into um, Indian relay and racing. So we're hoping to find a, a trainer that will, will give us that. But we're also wanting to breed, um, breed them. Actually, the, the young stallion that we have is in Montana right now, and he's expecting two, um, two or three uh, foals this, this, this spring still in June. Um, and... Like I said, they're they're rare breed. They're Akotekis. Um, they that breed got attention a few years ago, and Mike Tyson bought one. He's like, they're the most beautiful horse in the world. I can't do a good Mike Tyson impression, um, but he and he didn't know what he was gonna do with it. He just thought it was pretty, so he bought it. Uh, but they're a desert horse. Uh, many of them live actually in the high plains regions of, of Russia and the mountains of Iran and Turkey. Um, so they're used to also hard, hard weather, uh, like our winters here in North Dakota. But so far, they're, they're all staying alive. Uh, I actually got a horse um, not too long ago to learn how to ride because this is a hot breed. Aquatechies are hot. Like if you do not know how to race a horse, you do not get on one of these horses. Um, and one of the trainers we actually found, he's like, I was never scared of horses till I saw yours, <laughs> till I interacted <laughs> with yours. Um, which tells me something, right? Like there, you gotta be, you gotta know how to handle it. So I got a horse, uh, I think he's nine years old. Um, he's a Swedish worm, but he's giant. He's beautiful. He's got some aging issues, but he's super gentle. And that's just all I need right now to learn how to ride. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. Um, so what would, uh, what would you want to say to the 18 or the 22 year old that's listening to this right now? I would say just don't think you have to have it all figured out life, right? Mm -hmm. This path where by, by the time I'm 40, I want to have, you know, six figure in my bank. I want to have, you know, this kind of house and whatever those material things. I, I mean, I remember having some dreams like that. I was poor. Like, so I wanted to have some material things. Um, but when you lose so much in your family, in my experience, like we, we lost things to the flood. We lost things to a fire. We lost things just because addicts steal things and sell them. Right. Like, um, just those little things, like, and then the path that you thought you were going to have, you know, I thought I'd be working for a Senator. I thought I'd be, you know, doing, taking this political path somewhere else. And 
um, they're not failures. And I don't feel that my, my, uh, my path has failed or not accomplished anything. Because I feel when I, we define, I got to a point where we define our, our affluence, we define our health, we define um, our, our identities, right? Like, and what grounds us, what gives us peace, like what, what allows us to heal. There's so many suggestions out there, what we should do for self-care, what we should do for mental health, what we should do for, you know, whatever, but, but figure that out on your own. Where, where did, what gives you peace? What gives you joy? What gives you, you know, this great sense of connection to something else, right? And what gives you energy? Um, for me, it's, it's, it's finding that on my own, that, I, I need to be in solitude sometimes. I need to just hang out with the horses and be in the land and go walk down the path and figure out, you know, what kind of plants <laughs> and medicines we have in the area. Um, maybe it's taking all these dang puppies out <laughs> and just letting them rough me up for a little bit. But um, my my professional career uh, has taken some some turns, but never never necessarily in like the wrong direction. Just thankfully being able to be called to serve where my talents and my passion align and, 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 and owning that, right. Like owning that um, this is the work that I'm doing because I want to do this work. So that 18 to 22 year old don't feel like you have to have it all figured out. Like just do where you feel your talents align or that is feeding that, that, uh, that um, skill or awareness that you want. Cause Shoot, I, 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 I'm the first one to claim, like, I didn't know what kind of voice I had when I was 18 to 22, but I had a voice, right? And there may have been some missteps or things that I said that I would say differently now, but I'm much more diplomatic now than I was at 18 to 22. Uh, but that's okay. We're just learning and just, we're all on this continual path of learning. And I'm, I'm, I'm proud of 18 to 22 year olds. I'm proud of all of our young people who are stepping forward in a way that steps into their own power find that pursue it figure out what what direction you want to go in and and just go for it prairie rose (laughs) prairie rose thank you so much for this this was wonderful thank you joe i'm glad we did this i am too this is great thank you And that does it for this episode of Five Plain Questions. I want to thank Prairie Rose again for her time and sharing her story with us. Um, the work that she does is, is very difficult and very hard work. Uh, the amount of motivation, self-motivation it takes to be able to go out and seek opportunities and to engage with communities, that's hats off to her. That's so much work. And sometimes that also requires sitting at difficult tables and having difficult conversations with with those who uh, may on the, the onset seem like maybe they're sort of a difficult person towards any country. And I say that because, um, you know, what's happened in her life is so relatable to so many of us um, with the death of family members in law enforcement, um, the injustices that have happened either through the BIA or through our communities and trying to find the resilience to be able to move forward and work um, to try to create good work out of that and real and positive change which means engaging and confronting um, even your own personal courage to to make things happen 
And so, uh, yeah, I think what she's doing is great. And I, I, I applaud her for the work and the community, the relationships that she's formed over the years. And, you know, it's, it's, um, it's efforts that don't go unnoticed, uh, but she could definitely use more support and, um, more people, uh, working with her, uh, from our community. So, uh, you know, Prairie, um, keep doing what you're doing and you know just be on the lookout there might be another young one sitting by eating their happy meals listening to the good words and work that you're doing so keep that keep that door open behind you for those young ones more importantly i want to thank you for joining us and spending your time listening to what i feel is a very important story and perspective from our communities so please join us next week as we speak with another incredible person I'm Joe Williams. You can find me on Canada, that's C-A-N-A-A, Creativity Among Native American Artists on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter um, and or at our plainsart.org website where you can see our past programming, these videos, and uh, these podcasts. Um, so if you have someone that you would like me to speak with, uh, reach out to me. Let me know. I'd really like to hear from you. And that's it. You take care, and we will see you next week.